Hello, and welcome to Compass Church. If you have any questions about this message or are interested in learning more, please contact us. We'd love the opportunity to connect. Now, enjoy today's message. Well, good morning. My name is Craig. I'm one of the pastors here. And this morning, if you have a Bible, we're going to be continuing to look through the book of Ephesians. So if you have that Bible, please open to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to be in verses 5 through 9. And what's been our practice as we've been going through Ephesians is I'm going to read this passage. And then when I'm done, I'm going to say, this is the word of the Lord. And you can reply by saying, thanks be to God. And then I'm going to pray. So Ephesians 6, 5 to 9. This is God's word. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. With a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Rendering service with good will as to the Lord and not to man. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray to that God. Father, what a gift it is that you speak. You have not made us and left us alone. You are near. And so God, I pray that as we look to your word, we would be moved by your spirit to respond to your word in trust, in faith and obedience. God, your word makes life, and I pray that this morning your word would create life in our hearts, that we would see our Savior and how his new creation breathes meaning into the work we do. And ask all these things in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Does your job matter? Does the work you do make any difference at all? Does your job bring any meaning into the world? We spend most of our waking hours at work. And we want to know that what we're doing with most of our day and most of our lives actually means something. And this is a question more and more people are asking today. Is, am I involved in meaningful work? Do I do something that matters? See, everybody wants meaningful work. And this question of, does my work matter, is becoming more and more relevant and more and more complicated. Uh, Last week, uh, the Wall Street Journal posted a video from Boston Dynamics, and it was a video of robots moving boxes around a warehouse with a ton of precision. So whether you want to admit it or not, robots are coming, and they're coming for our jobs. Does the work we do matter? What does it mean to work? What does it mean to have meaningful work? 
uh, you know, everybody's looking for meaning. There's two kind of camps of how you find meaning in your work. There's one school of thought that says you just need to find your passion. So find what you do, who are you, what do you love, and just do that. Don't worry about what it pays. We'll take care of that later. Just find what you are and what you love and do that. That's one school of thought. There's another school of thought about how you find meaning in work that says, no, 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 no. Following your passion, that's terrible advice. Do not follow your passion. What you need to do is you need to just pick a trade, pick a job, and just do it. And eventually you'll get good at it and you'll like it. And yay, there's passion. And so whatever side of that camp that you're on, they're both asking the same question. How do we find meaning in what we do with our jobs? Uh, are, Are you one of those people that maybe you naturally, you just wake up and you love going to work? You find a ton of joy in what you do. You see what you're doing. You're like, you like cannot wait to get out of bed, get showered, and boom, hit the office, hit the classroom. Or maybe you're, you feel like Sisyphus in your job. You're just pushing that boulder up the hill, and you almost get it there, and then every day it just rolls back down, and you have to start over. And your job just feels pointless, and every day you're just waiting till 5 o'clock. Or maybe even worse, maybe you're waiting till you hit retirement age, And you can get on with what you really want to do. You can leave this work behind and then let life really start. And if that's reality for you, nothing can be more tragic than what happened to a Japanese businessman in 2008. This man had been working in the transportation sector and he finally reached retirement age. He finally had saved up enough money. He goes into the office for his last day and his co-workers are like, let's celebrate. And so they take him out. And they start, they're starting to paint the town red. And they're at a bar, and there's laughter, and there's joy, and they're celebrating. And so they pick up this guy, and they start throwing him up and down in the air. And then tragedy strikes. They miss him. He falls and does, does damage to both his spine and his neck, and was paralyzed. And a couple of months later, died from blood poisoning caused by the fall. And his wife, in an interview, interview with The Telegraph, said that she, she was grieving naturally, totally her world was just thrown upside down. She sued the company and said, look, this was gross negligence on your part. We had been working so very hard and we were finally about to do what we wanted to do. Our life was about to really start and then we watched it all go up in smoke. Does your work matter Or do we find meaning outside from work, away from work? Is work just that thing that you do between two Sunday services? Does your work matter to God? This passage screams a loud and resounding yes. Your work matters to God. The gospel breathes new life into our jobs, into our vocation. This breaks down this idea of the sacred and the secular. It's all his. Ephesians 1.10 says this, He is uniting all things to himself. Your work proclaims loudly, there is a Lord, and he's not just in the office on Sunday morning. This world is his, and he is making all things new. The gospel helps breathe new meaning back into your work. It says that, hey, what men and women were created to do broke, but it wasn't lost. And your work helps pick up the story of redemption, and it shows that the kingdom of God is breaking into the kingdom of man. 
Your work matters. And the, 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 this passage says that there's three ways that the gospel helps realign our relationship to our work, helps make our work new. First, it helps put work in its proper place. We live in a place where all of our identity, who am I? We, we get that from our jobs. That's who I am. It's what I do. The gospel, though, says, hey, work is so important. It is a big part of your identity. It's important, but it's not ultimate. So the gospel first puts work in its right place. And then once we have work in its right place, the gospel frees us to totally approach our jobs differently. Now we can work generously. Instead of trying to get our identity from what we do, we're now freed from that, and we've been given a new identity. We now can be generous in the marketplace. When the new creation hits the marketplace, the marketplace changes. And that's God's intention for your work. And then there's a word here in this passage for those of us who've been entrusted with authority. A word to leaders. How do we lead in response to the gospel? Well, it says the gospel empowers leaders, empowers leaders to use their power to lead in a generous way. But before we can talk about that, before we can jump in to see how the gospel realigns our relationship to work, we got to talk about the elephant in the room. It's a big elephant. If you just read this passage and it doesn't make you feel uncomfortable, let me read it again. Just the first verse. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. Ah! What's Paul doing? Like, what in the world, dude? Like, slavery is this great evil, and now are you just not being courageous and you're holding up this evil structure? What in the world's up, Paul? See, the reason that that's our natural reaction and the reason we feel like that when we read this passage is because we're being like our dear friends, our dear Colombian neighbors who travel to Peru and then are upset with the Peruvians that they don't have high V. Okay, that's what we're doing. We're reading our context into another context, okay? And like slavery in America was wicked. There is no way around that, okay? It was a wicked evil. Slavery in the Roman Empire was not the same thing. It really is comparing apples and oranges. Here's a couple differences. Slavery in the Roman Empire was not based on ethnicity. Slavery in America was based on ethnicity. It says, you are lesser than me, therefore you will do what I say. In the Roman Empire, nearly one-third of Roman uh, citizens were slaves. And if you were just walking around Rome, you would have no idea who was a slave, who wasn't a slave. And people would be slaves for all different types of reasons. So some people would be slaves because they wanted to climb the social ladder. Some people became slaves because they were prisoners of war. Some people became slaves um, because they were in debt and couldn't pay off that debt, so they worked off the debt. There are tons of reasons to be a slave. So think about it. One-third of the Roman Empire. That means if, we, if th- we were in Ephesus, you had three people up on stage, one of them would be a slave. This is a huge part of the society. And it's also important to know that when we think of American slavery, we think of kidnapping people and making them do terrible and awful and hard work. Certainly that happened in the Roman Empire. There were people who worked on boats who like rowed the oars and they worked in coal mines and there were terrible things. But on the whole, slavery was totally different. Doctors were slaves. Accountants were slaves. These are white collar jobs. People like, there, it was like indiscriminate. Caregivers were slaves. It just wasn't just like this terrible sector of, of society. It was everybody. 
So you're in here, you're a, you're a doctor, you're like, I don't know if I identify with this. If you were alive when Paul originally wrote this, you may have been in the slave category. Another way slavery was different is that the great majority, the great majority of slaves in the Roman Empire could bank on being set free, emancipated by age 30. Slavery wasn't eternal. It was a season for a lot of people's lives. And then this is probably the most important argument to help us see why slavery in Paul's day was different. No one. Like, we, we don't have any record. We have lots of records from around the time of Paul. And there is no record of anyone arguing to uh, abolish slavery in the Roman Empire. There's not one. There was even an uprising of slaves in 130 AD in the Roman Empire. The slaves got together, they unionized, they're like, we're going to take down the man. And even they, they would have been like a more extreme section of society, even they did not argue to abolish slavery. The the closest thing that we can get of a criticism of slavery is this. It's a Josephus. He was a a Pharisee who was alive around the time of Paul. He is, this is the closest criticism of slavery in the Roman Empire. He says this. He says um, that slavery provides temptation for people to be unjust. So you see, they're totally different. And if we're really going to compare what Paul is talking about into his context and talk about our context, it's employer and employee. That's the relationship that Paul is describing. And when he starts by talking to slaves, this is huge. What he's saying is this. Hey, if you work in a sector of society where people say you don't matter, where your work is meaningless, you matter. Slavery, uh, though while it was different, it still was shameful to be a slave. You were the bottom of the social ladder. And now Paul is saying, hey, people that society has pushed out to the edges, you play a central role in putting God's kingdom on display by saying that, yes, creation is broken, but it's not lost. And, 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 and what he's saying here is saying this, look, he's trying to put work for us in its proper place. Here's what he's saying when he talks to slaves. He says, this, work is important, but it is not ultimate. Look what he says to these people. He says this, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. When he uses that phrase, earthly masters, what he's doing is he's taking people and he's pulling their heads back from the branches to see the whole forest. He's helping them see that what's going on here is not that, hey, yes, you have a boss. Yes, that is reality. But there's something even greater. You have an earthly master, but you ultimately answer to a heavenly master. This matters, but it is not ultimate. Work matters, but it is not ultimate. It does not have the last word. And that's so important to note. We live in a context where people are saying, who you are is what you do. And if you're in here this morning and you know Jesus... Who you are is central to what you do, but it's not all that you do. And he's saying, look, there is a heavenly master. And, and look at what he says. Obey your, your earthly masters with fear and trembling. Now, if we just read this fast, it sounds like he's giving earthly masters like kind of a blank check. You need to just do whatever they say with fear and 
trembling. But that's not what Paul is saying. Paul is not saying obey somebody with fear and trembling. He's saying do your work with fear and trembling. That phrase fear and trembling, Paul uses it throughout the New Testament to describe our relationship with God. He's saying work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Approach your work with the same heart attitude you approach your faith. Why? Because there's no division between sacred and secular. This is what we were made to do. We are image bearers of God. And when God wants us to know what he's like, he starts by giving us this poem, story, narrative, uh, all mixed up into one. In the beginning, God created. What it means to be an image bearer of a creating God is that we were created to create. Think about this for a second. So let's say, let's say you're in eighth grade. Eighth grade is like kind of universally like the worst year of school, okay? Let's say you're in eighth grade and you move to a new town and you want to make friends. And so all of a sudden this like group of kids is like, hey, you can be our friend. You, you, you'll be our buddy. And these friends are totally different from the friends you had back home. These friends are kind of wild, but they're really cool, right? So now all of a sudden you find yourself doing things you didn't do from where you moved from. You're stealing stuff. You're breaking stuff. You're being wild. Why is that? Because you're an image bearer. What does it mean to be an image bearer? You revere those friends. You want their respect. And so then you start to resemble them. What we revere, we resemble. And so if we revere God, we start to resemble him. That's what it means to be in the image of God. And how, what did God make people to do? Well, he's a creating God. And as soon as he makes men and women, this is what he says to them. He says this in Genesis 1.28. God blessed them. Right after he said, this is right after he said he made men and women in his image. What does he do? He blesses them. And he says to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. That verb subdue is so central to your identity as a worker. You have been made to subdue things. What does that mean? The word for subdue really can better be translated cultivate. What does God do? He makes stuff. He makes everything in Genesis 1, 1 and 2. And then through the rest of creation week, he takes the raw materials of creation and he makes stuff. And that's exactly what we're supposed to do in his image. We're supposed to, we're supposed to take the raw materials of creation and start making stuff. So as one uh, writer and thinker says, the egg, like a physical egg, is great. But the omelet is fantastic. <laughs> that's what it means to cultivate. And that's what we do. That's what it means to be human, to be a maker, to be a creator, to take the raw nature of, of creation and to make something out of it. And you can see, like, this, this is how we live. So Eric Liddell, uh, if you've ever seen, like, this cheesy movie, Chariots of Fire, where that song comes from, da 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 okay? Cheesy movie, but really cool, profound moment in that movie. Eric Liddell ran uh, track and field, in like around the mid-20th century. And he was super fast, went to the Olympics. Uh, but he did this weird thing when he would run. He would get going, and then when he like hit his brake speed, he would tilt his head back and laugh. And like, I mean, I've never been super fast or very athletic, but I can imagine that's like not great form, right? 
And so reporters started asking him, like, hey, what are you doing, like, when you do that? And he said, oh, God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. That's the image of God. Some of you feel guilty about being really good at your job. Maybe you're a great accountant, you're a great salesperson, you're a great teacher, and you don't see how that's spiritual. That's the image of God in you. God made you good at math, and when you add, subtract, and multiply, you feel his pleasure. That's what it means to be human. What happened, though, because of sin? Instead of mirroring that back to God, we started using it for ourselves. Instead of feeling our creator's pleasure, instead of doing that as an act of worship, what happens in Genesis 4, we start building cities. And they're based on injustice and violence. Where somebody kills somebody and they brag, ha ha, God's got to forgive me. That's who he is. We've distorted work. Work's not the problem. We're the problem. But what's the antidote to that problem? Ephesians 2.15. He's made us the new humanity. It's an echo back to Genesis. He made humanity and he gave them a job. And they sinned and they rebelled and they messed that up. And what has he done? He's made humanity new. We now have that old role restored back. Some people will tell you that the idea of the the creation mandate where it says, um, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Some people will tell you, oh, no, 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 that's just for Genesis. That's just for Adam and Eve. That doesn't apply to anyone else. Now, if someone tells that to you, be super gracious. Don't say this to them. They don't know their Bible. Okay? And I just want to give you just a quick sampling really fast. Psalm 104, 14 says this, talking to Yahweh, you cause the grass to grow for livestock and plants for man to cultivate. Same word, subdue the earth. Ecclesiastes 5, 9. Here's what it says. He says this, but this is gain for a land. This is good for a whole country. This is good for people. What? A king committed to cultivating fields. This, this is, work is made to produce flourishing, and that's not an idea we left in Genesis. What happened, though, is we spun it wrong in Genesis. We started using our work for ourselves. And now Paul is saying this, that because of the gospel, we are now free to work generously. Look back with me in Ephesians. We're going to start uh, in verse 5. We're going to take it all the way to verse 8. Here's what he says. Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ doing the will of God from your heart, rendering with benevolence as to the Lord and not to man. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is slave or free. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, if we, if we do work in the old creation way of doing work, if we do work in the broken way of doing things, how we approach our job is for, to please people. And at first it's like, well, what's so wrong with that? 
Like, for example, Jerry Seinfeld, who's arguably the greatest comedian American has, America has ever produced. Okay, if you don't know, Jerry Seinfeld was a stand-up comedian who in the late 80s, early 90s, created the most successful television show on NBC. Uh, it ended, and then it went into syndication, and he made a ton of money. And then after that, he went on to have a hugely successful stand-up career. And after that, he went on to have another hugely successful show with the stand-up career. And in a recent interview... So a guy who is on top of his field, he is rocking it, okay? And in a recent interview, he said to the, to the person asking him questions, I have no idea, like, why I get up and talk to people. I'm like, what, what do you have to say? Nobody cares. You're not good at this. They're just laughing to be polite. Think about that. If a guy who is, like, rocking his profession has imposter syndrome, I think you and I may have imposter syndrome when we approach our vocation and our job. And so kind of what that naturally plays into is like we want feedback from people. Hey, am I doing a good job? Well, what this passage wants to warn us about is that because of sin, because we're broken, that's a slippery slope to a bottomless pit. See, what, what people-pleasing is at its heart And what it can quickly morph into is this, not trusting God's approval and acceptance. Not trusting God's approval and his acceptance. What have we been looking at throughout this book? That we were dead in trespasses and sin. We've been made alive. The book opens up with this. Blessed is the one who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He says this, you are a trophy of his grace. You are raised and seated in the heavenlies with Christ. Is this anything you did? No, for by grace you have been saved. You are a sinful mess, but God showers you with his grace and sits you up in heaven with Christ. You have his approval. You have peace with God. And what we do when we seek the approval of others, we are saying, God, that's not enough. I don't trust that. I need this to be tangible. I need to see something. And here's why this is dangerous. You cannot serve people when you need their approval. That will very quickly morph into you using them for your own ego. And Paul is saying this, we have been set free from that. The one who really matters sees your work. Look at verse 8. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive back from the Lord. See that? The one who matters, God, sees the work that you do. And he will repay you. Trusting that truth Trusting that if you fail in your career or if you do really well in your career, that you've been accepted by God and he sees that, trusting that reality frees you to then do what he describes. You can obey your earthly masters with a sincere heart. What does it mean to have a sincere heart? What you see is what you get. You're not trying to play the conniving game. You're not trying to like, oh, if I do this, then I can get this position of power. And people can trust you. Because you really are free to serve people. And also, how can we serve? It says this, with benevolence, with good will, because we're servants of Christ. He's going to reward. He's trying to protect your heart here from just apathy and from escapism. He's trying to say, look, you may have a job, slaves, the bottom of the ladder, 
and you may not feel like it matters. Don't cash out. Your job matters. The work you do is communicating something, and that's important. And also, the one who created you sees the work you do and will reward it. He's again trying to help us not miss the forest for the branches. Look, I've had jobs that I try to spin that they sound more impressive than they are, right? So, you know, you're at a party. Hey, Craig, what do you do? Oh, well, I handle cash flow transactions for a retail finance group. I was a teller at a bank. (laughs) And here's what he's saying. Like, this is a reality. You work. No one's going to see that it's glamorous except the one who made work. And he will repay you. And you can take that to the bank that that's going to be pretty good. Look what he's already done. He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing. He sat you up with Jesus. And he's saying, look, that one is the one who will reward you for your work. This isn't earning your salvation, by the way. If you think that, you need to go back through the book of Ephesians. This is not like, hey, work hard and you'll be saved. He's saying, hey, new creation people stuck in mundane jobs that you feel don't matter. It matters. And it matters deeply. Just a couple of ways that you can really live this out in your work. One of the ways is just not caring who gets credit. The gospel frees you to have to showboat your way through your career. You already have love and acceptance by the one who matters. So it doesn't matter if your boss doesn't see it. Though your real boss sees it and will reward you with something better than a Christmas bonus. And so you can now work in a way where you don't care who gets credit. You can serve people. That's generosity. I mean, Simon Sinek, who's uh, done TED Talks and wrote a lot about leadership, he talks about just the odd place that the American workplace is. So he says that the American military uh, rewards people who put themselves in danger for the betterment of others. Where the, the American office rewards people who just make their lives better. They just rake in money. We give them bonuses. You can be a counterculture in your office place by not caring who gets the credit. And it will be contagious. I mean, people like working with people who don't showboat. Another way that we can really work with generosity is just this idea in itself. Good craftsmanship. Good craftsmanship is a biblical idea. There's nothing, yes, we can use it for vanity. Look at how great I am. Look what I'm doing. Isn't this awesome? Or you can use good craftsmanship to serve and love your neighbor. Are you selling things that people don't need and you're telling them that they do? That's not good craftsmanship. That's not serving your neighbor. That's serving yourself. When we are now free to know that, hey, our needs are taken care of, I can take risks and be generous, we can work well. Because nothing's at stake. We can take risks. And the last way that we can work generously is this idea of working with justice. Jeremiah seventeen eleven is this awesome verse. It's pretty funny. Uh, it says something like this, like, uh, just like a peacock that lays an egg that isn't its is like a person who gathers wealth uh, that they don't earn. They, they gathered wealth without justice. It's going to leave them in the heat of the day. We need to be, what it means to be a new creation working generously is that we're not out for dishonest gain. We're not just here to say, hey, we're trying to suck life dry of all the money we want. Work is a good end in and of itself. And our creator who made work sees that and will reward it. And so I'm going to give you this Lewis quote. I just want you to remember, this is C.S. Lewis saying this, not me. 
So keep this in mind, okay? Here we go. Lewis says this about engaging the arts, which is work. Engage the arts not as a front for propaganda, but because the arts are goods in and of themselves. Your work communicates something. You don't need to make cheesy Christian movies. Okay? Yeah. That's the gospel breathes meaning into our work. And then Paul closes up this whole section with a word to people who have authority. A word to masters. Here's what he says. Masters, do the same thing. What, what thing? That working with generosity, that benevolence. And stop threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours in heaven, he's the same guy, and there's no partiality with him. Now before we start talking about power, we need to just take a breath. All right? Nobody sees themselves naturally as having power. All right? Like, we kind of have this, like, idea of, like, look, I got bills to pay. I've got a mortgage. If I stop working, all that falls to pieces. So I'm not powerful. This is talking about someone who lives up in the hills. They've never had to work a day in their life. They just say things and countries collapse. Not me. And, and, and when we start talking about authority and power, it can be very easy to just get, let our inner lawyer go crazy. I'm not really powerful. You know who's powerful? My boss. They're powerful. Not me. I'm off the hook. But here, here, like, and part of the reason we're like that is because the Bible is really brutally honest with two groups of people. People who are religious and not, don't have a new heart. They're just outwardly religious and rich people. And so we know, like, oh, if I acknowledge that I'm rich, I'm, get, I'm cruising for a bruising with God. But look at what he says here. It's really important to hear what he doesn't say as we hear what he says. He does not say, masters, stop being masters. Masters, give away what power you have and just stop it. Here's what he says. Masters, do the same thing and stop threatening. Power and authority are not evil in and of themselves. What happens is that we use our power in that old creation mindset. How can I accumulate stuff to me? How can I make my life better? And when we do that, we do a ton of damage. And so what Paul is saying here is not, hey, you're powerful and that's bad. What he's saying here is how do you use your power? How do you use control? And look, just globally speaking, we are the richest people on the planet, okay? So every single person in this room has some degree of power. Yes, there are those who have it more than others, but we all have power. I think Jesus helps us understand this well in Matthew 18. He tells the story of a guy who owes a debt to someone. So think about it. You know, he may head into slavery. And he owes the guy millions and millions of dollars. And the guy forgives him. Hey, don't worry about it. You're free to go. There's a power dynamic there. Do you see it? Someone has a lot of real power over somebody. But then what happens? That somebody goes to somebody else who owes him a couple bucks and says, pay up. Do you see that? There are realms in our lives where we are not powerful. Someone has power over us. But there are realms in our lives where we do have power. And that's everybody in this room. And how are we supposed to use that power? He says, do the same things. 
What are those things? Working with benevolence from a sincere heart. Generosity. Being shaped by the gospel. And how does the gospel really empower us to do this? Well, look, he points to someone with real power. He says this, look, masters, you have a master. You think you're powerful. Here's someone who's even more powerful. And what does he do with that power? He shows no partiality. God, the one with real power, is not concerned with your status. Not at all. Real power, the God who speaks and things happen, is, is totally unbiased. And, and what, what's the result of that and how we lead? Stop threatening people. Don't use your power as a weapon. That is, that is how old creation things, that's how things used to work. We don't work like that anymore. The gospel empowers you to lead with generosity. What does that mean to lead with generosity? It can look like listening. It can look like um, valuing the opinions of people who like really, I mean, no one cares what they think. When you do that, you're communicating there's something better than status. I just want to close with just, just kind of pointing at three people here real quick. We started by asking, does your job matter? Does the work you do mean anything? I think it does. I think it's very meaningful in the kingdom of God. And so I want to talk to people who maybe you're here and you're like, I, but I hate my job. It's the worst. You don't know what I do. It's really meaningless. I just want to say this to you. Like this passage has a word for you if you're stuck in a dead-end job, and it's this. It's be patient. Be patient. Paul is trying to point you to a future where you will be rewarded even for menial tasks. Be patient. This is just a season. When we're in a season, that's all we can see. But seasons change. Except if you're in Missouri. But seasons change. So don't give up. The one who sees your work, the one who matters, sees your work. I also want to talk to retirees. And I want, to, I want to be clear here, super clear, okay? When we start talking about work and value, it can be very easy if you're a retiree to be like, I don't matter. I'm not working. I'm not on anybody's payroll. That is not what this passage is going for. This passage is not saying only work you do that is paid for by corporate America matters. This passage is saying that cultivating doesn't stop when you hit 65 and a half. That like, don't think of your retirement as like, oh great, now I get to sit on the beach and stare at my toes and Instagram pictures of my grandkids. That's not all retirement is. Those, those things are great. And maybe we have like an American understanding of retirement and not a biblical understanding of work. Work is not something to be rescued from. Like your understanding of heaven really plays into this whole understanding of things. Heaven is not a place where we're going to go and sit on a cloud and not work. Isaiah describes in his letter in great detail, there's going to be work in the new heavens and the new earth. There's going to be vineyards that need to be uh, taken care of. There's going to be fields that need to be plowed. People are going to be playing and doing all kinds of work. So don't think that work is something to be rescued from. I also want to say something to you stay-at-home parents. This is where I want to be super clear, okay? The work you do matters. It's important 
kingdom work. You are in a way caring for the least of these. Nobody sees it. And it can just feel like, oh my goodness, this is exhausting. The work you do matters. I'm married to a stay-at-home parent. and We made that decision seriously together. Okay? Did you hear me say that? Here's the thing. That's not all there is to work, though. There, you need to, like, when it comes to cultivating creation, kids are just a season. And the reason that you can feel like you're spinning out of control when you retire and you're spinning out of control when your kids leave the house is because you haven't been cultivating this idea of, like, I'm a cultivator. I'm supposed to work. I'm supposed to find something to do and do it. And so just keep in mind you're in a season, and it's just a season. It is work. It's important. And if you, if you think what I just said is heretical, read Proverbs 31 and read it a little more carefully. Proverbs 31 woman takes goods to the market and buys and sells. She does not stay at home and blog and put things on Pinterest, okay? She is a worker, all right? And so here's what you need to know. Like, what you're doing is important work, but it's not all the work you do. And I just want to close with this. I just want to close with this. We live in an age where there's so many questions about work. Like, will my job exist in 50 years? Sounded like something from sci-fi. Uh, and now it's a real reality. Like, and it can be really, really scary. And here's the thing, like, we're going to have to figure out how to do work in a place where it feels like the things that we do and the, the, your whole career that you built in is now done by a computer. What, what does that take? How do we really do that? Wisdom and work. And here's the thing, Christians, like, we cannot just like surrender this battle. Work matters to God because it communicates something. We're made to be workers. And when we don't work, things spin out of control. And so I think like as Christians, as we think about the future that we face, one of the things that we can't give up is work. People lose their value when it comes to not working and we need to fight for that. Why? Because work matters to God. It's who we are. It's not, it's not ultimate, but it matters. And when we work, we can now, instead of using our careers to better ourselves, we can be generous and then we can ultimately point back to a savior who is generous to his enemies. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. That it's clear and that uh, it just can cut to our hearts. God, I pray that we'd be shaped by your word and we take that into our offices this week. And that we would approach them with new energy and zeal. Thank you for all these things in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.